Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. How can your life be boring if God lives inside you? And I don't just mean that as a statement for shock value, although as a good pastor and preacher, you do use shock value, but that's not mainly how I mean that. I mean that mainly just as a proposition, just as a statement of something that is true. God himself lives inside you if you, by faith, are united to Jesus Christ. The promise of the Old Testament was, quote, I will put my spirit within you, and we now live in the new covenant. That was promised to take place in the new covenant. You and I as believers, we live in the new covenant. That has been fulfilled, and the promise was, I will put my spirit within you, both among you as believers, but also within you individually. You came to church today with God inside of you, and you might not have thought that about yourself when you buckled your children in the car, when you took your aspirin, when you got out of bed, when you brushed your teeth. You might not have thought about the fact that God himself was inside of you, but you know what else you didn't think about? The fact that your body was producing 30,000 new skin cells every minute this morning. You didn't think about that. But just the fact that you weren't aware of that happening doesn't mean that it wasn't happening. Just the fact that you were not aware, perhaps consciously, that God himself was within you every moment of this morning doesn't mean that he wasn't. And scripture declares that in fact he was. The Bible makes many conclusions based on the fact that God is inside you. Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, which we'll see in a little bit, that since the Holy Spirit lives inside your body, since you have God himself living within your very physical body, therefore you should avoid sexual sin because your body is a temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. And Paul says in that same letter back in chapter 3, that because we as believers have the Holy Spirit living within us, we therefore are a temple of the living God, and so you should not create unneeded divisions within the church. Because whoever destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's serious business. Those are conclusions based on the fact that you have God living inside of you. For now, though, I just want to make one simple observation based on the fact that God is living inside you as a Christian. If what I'm saying is true, and God does live inside you, and He is the God revealed to us in the Scriptures, then your life is not meaningless. Your life is not small or insignificant, and in an ultimate sense, your life is not boring. And you might object and say, well, if you knew the externals of my life, they are very boring. I put data into Excel sheets, I go to sleep, and I do it again. Maybe the externals of your life are boring, but taken as a whole from heaven's vantage point, there's nothing boring about your life. How can there be, if we took the most important being in the universe, God himself, for whom the entire universe was created and who orders and controls all things, who sits on his heavenly throne, and he in some manner dwells inside you, he's made that choice to dwell inside you uniquely in a way that, although he's everywhere, he doesn't dwell in this way in everyone, but he does within you. 
And if we're talking about the God of the Bible, and if we're saying that He dwells inside you, then your life is not small or insignificant, even if it feels like it is. This analogy is maybe overused, but if a United States president, either present or in the past, were to come to your house today for lunch, it would not be a boring lunch. Even if the conversation was boring, with all the secret service and all that would happen there and all that would happen afterward, it wouldn't be boring. Maybe it would be very pleasant. Maybe it would be very unpleasant. But the point is, it would be very something. And of course, we're not talking about a president in your home. We're talking about you taking God into your home when you go back home because he lives inside of you. The 50th Psalm speaks of evildoers who assume that since God doesn't immediately visibly show himself and intervene while they're doing evil, they assume that God is just like them, that he must approve of their evil or at least be uninterested in being involved. He's aloof. And God replies to those people like this, Mark this then, you who forget God. I'll stop it right there. The point of this lesson today, and really of this class, is that none of us would be worthy of that designation, you who forget God. And very often we do forget that God lives inside us, that the Holy Spirit indwells us, and that we are a temple of the living God. The goal of this lesson is to move us as far away from that description in Psalm 50, you who forget God. We do forget Him, but our goal today is to take that famous proverb from Proverbs chapter 3, in all your ways acknowledge God and apply it to how we think about the Holy Spirit. If He's inside you, and He is, it's a matter of us acknowledging that fact. So like I said, we're going to focus today on the fact that the Holy Spirit who dwells inside you, He is God. Because if He's not actually God, then nothing of what I just said in that introduction applies. It depends on the fact that the Holy Spirit's God. So we're going to talk about that today, and the next week we'll talk about him as an individual person of the Trinity and what that means for us. So what today's lesson is going to look like is this. First, we need to establish from the Bible the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. It's kind of the legwork or the homework, because as I've said, not everyone in the world, not all who claim to be Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is God. So we have to look to Scripture and see, is that really what Scripture teaches? If we find that is what Scripture teaches, then we can apply it. And I'll make one specific application, just like I did in the introduction, that if He is God and the Holy Spirit dwells inside you, your life is not meaningless or small or insignificant. It's simply impossible for it to be that. So let's begin our class now by establishing from the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is God. And this is important for you too because you very well have already or may in the future encounter someone who does not believe the Holy Spirit is God. Where would you go in the Bible to demonstrate that in fact He is? Can you do that? I want to give you two kinds of passages in the New Testament that when taken together make it very clear that the Holy Spirit is God. These are some technical terms, but we're going to use them, okay? The first is a group of passages that we call triadic passages. That's T-R-I-A-D-I-C. Triadic. You see tri, three. Triadic passages. We'll look at a few of those. The next group of passages 
I don't have an official technical term for them, so I just made one up. It's, it's not the best term, so maybe there is a technical term. Tell me if there is one. I'm going to call them interchangeable passages, and these are passages in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is referred to interchangeably with God himself. So we're talking about God, now we're talking about the Holy Spirit interchangeably to demonstrate that they are considered the same. So triadic passages and interchangeable passages. So let me show you just a few of these. I'll keep them brief. We won't look at a, a lot. Let's begin with the best known triadic passage in the New Testament. A triadic passage is when you have the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're put in a parallel relationship. In other words, side by side by side. If anyone had to guess where the most popular triadic passage where you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a single verse right next to each other, parallel, what do you think the first passage we're going to go to would be? Creation. That's actually good. Creation we do see, Father, Son, and Spirit. But I'm thinking New Testament and I'm thinking a very clear and they're all named. So the baptism, we have all three of them. The one I'm thinking of is related to that, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is Matthew chapter 28, the end of Matthew, the very end of it. Jesus is giving his great commission. He's risen from the dead. He's about to ascend, in, to ascend into heaven. And there in verse 19, as he's giving the commands to his disciples, he includes baptizing them, new believers, in the name, one name, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And just a few notes about this triadic passage. It is not definitive proof of the Trinity. You can't just say Matthew 28, 19, and now we know for sure the Holy Spirit's God and that's the end of the discussion. However, it is, as one commentator put it, a significant pointer. It is difficult to read this verse and not at least begin to think of the Holy Spirit as God or some immensely exalted being, that he could be put in this parallel relationship. Just a few notes about this. Think first the fact that this is not one of those verses hidden in Leviticus that cults pull out some odd verse. It's important, inspired by God, but they pull it out and they build huge doctrines on it. We're talking about the Great Commission. It is the last thing that Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, and therefore it has stuck in the mind of the saints for the last 2,000 years. If you ask Christians today about passages they recognize, they will recognize this passage, the Great Commission, verses 18 to 20, more than they will almost any other passage, because it was sort of Jesus' last will and testament before he went to heaven. If you've ever been at someone's side at a deathbed, and you hear some of their last words, those last words stick with you because they're the last words. That's what we have in the Great Commission. So we're not pulling something out of a, a part of scripture that's obscure that people won't know about. This triadic passage, God presents it to all his people in a way that they will remember the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, it establishes a pattern for baptism. So even in the practice of the church, we are baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This was not something, this relationship of these three parallel, Father, Son, Spirit. This was not something that was off to the side, but it was something that has always been very prominent for Christians. 
Some would call this verse a Trinitarian passage, meaning demonstrates the Trinity, and you can call it that. That's maybe not the most accurate way to speak of it. That's why I call it triadic, because it doesn't prove the Trinity. It doesn't describe the relationship between these three, but it simply names them one after the other. Also, you'll notice that it says baptizing them in the name, and it does not say in the names. In the name of, and name in the scriptures is not, it does refer to the letters you use to spell a name. That's how we use it. But it also refers just to a person. Your name is you. The name of the Father is the Father. It's everything that He is. So we baptize in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, even here, it's not definitive proof. Because technically, you can use a singular, and then say of and of, and it can mean multiple names. So if I said, I didn't know that third guy's name, but I knew the name of Jacob and of John, I can do that. It can be done in the Greek. So it's not definitive proof, but it is, again, a significant pointer among everything else in this passage that points to the fact that the Holy Spirit is included with the Father and the Son in this parallel relationship and is himself God. The language all by itself doesn't prove it, but the clause as a whole, this verse as a whole, it's just difficult to imagine the Holy Spirit not being God and yet being put right here. So, into the name of the Father when we're baptizing, we would say, of course, obviously, we're being baptized in the sight of, before, and in dedication unto the Father, God, because He predestined us to salvation. He has brought it about. Being baptized into the name of the Son, well, certainly, He is the one who has worked salvation. And being baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, it's to say, wait a second. If the Holy Spirit is not God, how can we put Him here? Imagine, for example, if we were to put any other being less than God in that third position. If we were to say, Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the archangel Michael. Would you be baptized in the name of the archangel Michael? And we're speaking of a great being, but less than God. It's unthinkable in practice that we would baptize anyone in the name of Michael. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Apostle Peter. <laughs> you can't imagine it being done. Wayne Grudem, the theologian, uh, he commented on this, although now I've, oh yeah, here it is. He said, this would give to a created being a status entirely inappropriate even to an archangel. And the New Testament at times does speak of the baptism of John, meaning John the Baptist, because he did it. But it never refers to being baptized in John's name. <laughs> he was pointing forward to Jesus, who is God. So it is difficult to imagine that the Holy Spirit would be put third in baptism of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, unless he was and is God. It's simply the most natural explanation of this verse. And you can work hard to have it mean something else, but you'd have to work hard.
So there's one. Let me give you one other triadic passage briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. And again, it's not a side verse or a side comment. It is the very last verse of 2 Corinthians. And it is a sort of blessing or doxology that is given here at the end. It's one of those things that, just like the Great Commission, would stick in the minds of Christians. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we read, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here we have a blessing. It's clearly triadic. The order is different. We start with the Son, then the Father, then the Holy Spirit, but three parallel relationships. And if you just think about the other blessings in the Bible that are given, let me give you an example. The Aaronic blessing, blessing of Aaron that many of you recognize. It's given to us in Numbers chapter 6. Let me read it to you. And you tell me if you can discover when a blessing is given in the Bible, who is always the one blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There is never a blessing in the Bible that says, may the apostle Peter give you peace. <laughs> Clearly, all the blessings in the Bible are desires on the part of the person saying them that the Lord, God himself, would offer the blessing. How else can you then take 2 Corinthians 13, 14? If you have this wish, this desire that is given, that Jesus would give his grace to the Corinthian believers that the Father would give his love to the Corinthian believers, and that the Holy Spirit would give fellowship to the believers, which is one of his roles that we'll see later. How could the Holy Spirit be any less than God? Again, if you do some mental gymnastics, you can leap your way away from understanding the Holy Spirit as God in this passage, but you've got to work hard at it. Because again, the most natural understanding is we're talking about three persons of the Godhead. Now here I should mention that among those who deny that the Holy Spirit is fully God, many would say things like, well, the Holy Spirit is just the power of God. So when the Spirit is talked about in the Bible, it's just referring to God's power. We will talk next week about his personhood for that very reason. We'll delay the conversation until then, mostly. Others would say when the Spirit is spoken of in the Bible, the Spirit is just another poetic way to refer to God himself, the Father. But if either of those things were true, then both the triadic passages we just looked at are redundant. It would not be necessary to speak of the Father and the Son and the Father, <laughs> or to speak of the Father and the Son and the Father's power or to wish a blessing that comes to you from the Father, and it comes to you from the Son, and it comes to you from the Father's power. You understand that would make it redundant. When we have poetic uses in the Old Testament, which are very common in Hebrew, you would have parallelisms that are poetic, and there would be a restatement of what's said before. So we might say God's Spirit and then God. We'll see that in a second. 
It's always two. It's always two. So if you read any kind of older poetry, you say something and then you're going to re-say it, but in a poetic way. And so you use a synonym. If you're writing a paper for school, you know you right-click it and Microsoft Word. I don't know if they still do this. They would give you all the synonyms and you've got to change the word so you don't reuse the same one. But it's always with two in the Bible. These triadic passages are clearly three parallel relationships. So these then are the triadic passages. If you just remember these two, if someone casts doubt upon the idea that the Holy Spirit's God, if you can just flip to the end of Matthew or the end of 2 Corinthians, you'll have two very solid pieces of evidence that he is. All right, I've got one more group of passages to work through. And these are what we're going to call the interchangeable passages, where the Holy Spirit's used interchangeably with God. Let me give you the one that you're probably most familiar with first. And this I'm picking from a lot of possible examples. The Holy Spirit is mentioned some 300 times in the Old Testament, so we could draw from a lot of examples. He's often used interchangeably with God, which is why some think it's just a poetic restatement of God to speak of the Spirit. Let me give you the one in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. Probably half of you have this memorized. Where shall I go from, you know, your spirit? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from, you know this one, your presence? If I, and it's a prayer of David to God, if I ascend to heaven, you, God, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you, God, are there. So are we talking about the Spirit or are we talking about the Lord? Yes, we are. Used absolutely interchangeably. Again, it's Hebrew poetry, so you usually restate using different words. But here, clearly, David understands God's spirit to be the equivalent of God. That's why some have thought there's no distinction at all. We're going to dispute that next week. There's a distinction of person. But those who think there's no distinction are at least right in saying they are both God. The Father and the Spirit clearly are God. How else would you understand what's stated right there? They're used very much interchangeably right here. Let me give you one last interchangeable passage. And it is, if you want to just remember one verse, it's really two verses, but one passage to help you in case someone challenges the divinity of the Holy Spirit, just remember these two verses. They are the best and the clearest, okay? They're in Acts chapter 5, it's verses 3 and 4. You may remember that in the early church after Pentecost, the believers were together, they had all things in common, and one of the ways that was expressed was that those who had property would go and sell the property, and they would take the resulting money and give it to the apostles so that the apostles could distribute it according to any needy Christians who didn't have food, didn't have covering. They would take the money from the sold properties. Now, it's not communism because it was not coerced, okay? It was entirely voluntary. But the Christians in love for other Christians would do this. There was no obligation, like I said. That is the background you need to understand that two people, husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, 
who were in the believing community there in Jerusalem, they sold a piece of property, took the money, came to the apostles and said, here is all the money from the property that we sold. Now, they didn't have to give any of the money, no obligation at all. But what they did is they lied because in agreement, they kept back some of the money, put it in a little savings fund or bought something they were wanting to buy, but they lied to the apostles saying, this is all the money. Supposedly because they wanted to look good like all the other Christians, so they didn't want to look like we kept some of it. So they are lying to the apostles. Now with that background, in Acts 5, 3, and 4, let me show you what Peter said to Ananias. And keep this question in your mind as I read. To whom did Ananias lie? Okay, keep that in your mind. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? After it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Did Ananias lie to the Holy Spirit, or did Ananias lie to God? Yes, to both. Clearly, Peter is using them interchangeably here. And you would definitely, especially as a good Jew like Peter, you would not use God interchangeably with any creature. You would never do it. Never. And yet here, he uses God interchangeably with the Holy Spirit. So, I hope these two sets of passages are enough to establish. There's a lot more that could be said, but enough to establish the Holy Spirit is God. How could he be anything other than God? Clearly, he is God. All right, all that remains for us in this class now is to take this fact that the Holy Spirit is God and apply it. I'm going to return to my point in the introduction, a holy syllogism, if you will. If the Holy Spirit is God, which we've just established is true, and if the Holy Spirit lives within you, which as we will see, is true of every believer, Romans 8, 9 claims it, for example, then you yourself have God living within you. Most of you have seen the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, either the old one or the more recent Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or the book, whatever, but you've seen, you know the story. And you may remember, I remember the scenes from my childhood in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You remember the compilation? They have this sort of compilation of scenes where the whole world has gone crazy trying to find the five golden tickets that are hidden within these, these Wonka bars that are distributed throughout the whole world. So people are buying boxes and boxes of these chocolate Wonka bars, and they're opening them up and tossing them away because there's no golden ticket, because there's only five golden tickets in the whole world, and if you get it, you get to go into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Excuse me. You Christian, you're a Wonka bar. <laughs> it's not a put down, it might sound like it. But you really are a sort of Wonka bar because when you think of us just as people, just as creatures, 
there's not an inherent significance. I mean, if you think about the number of people on this planet, the billions, and under the curse, we die, we pass away, generations are forgotten. Sometimes, maybe this has been you, you've lied in your bed and late, I don't know how to conjugate that, you figure that out. You're in your bed and you're just thinking, is there significance to my life at all? How can there be when there's so many people living, dying, no one knows me, I'll be forgotten in a hundred years. It's like the Wonka bars. Open them, toss them. Open them, toss them. Nothing inherently. It's a chocolate bar, great. You eat it, it's gone. But when God himself lives inside you, you become one of the five Wonka bars that underneath the foil has that glimmer of gold, has the golden ticket. And if anyone in that movie were to find that Wonka bar with the golden ticket within it, that Wonka bar is worth millions of dollars because of the golden ticket within it. That's the point of all of this. Why do we care that the Holy Spirit is God? There are many reasons, but one is the fact that if the Holy Spirit's God and He dwells inside you, you have God living inside you in a unique way. You say, well, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So, of course, He's inside me. He's inside a rock. He's inside everything. But Scripture clearly teaches that if you're a believer, God dwells in you in a unique way, in a special way. It's like when you tell your children, little, my little Felicity, who's two right now, and she can't say very many words, but as we're trying to talk about God, I just say, where is God? And she says, up. <laughs> She's not wrong. God's also here and here, but God is up because God dwells in heaven in a special way. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the temple in a special way. Today, God dwells in you in a special way, not a normal way in the way he is within a rock, so to speak. God dwells in you in a special way, and it is God who dwells in you. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And see how he puts it. Do you not know, which suggests you've forgotten, you who forget God. Have you forgotten that God himself God the Spirit dwells within you, and that makes you a temple. If you know anything of the Old Testament, you know that the temple was the center of worship. Almost everything in the Old Testament, including Genesis, before there even was a temple, before there even was a tabernacle, everything seems to be pointing forward to the tabernacle that then becomes the temple where God uniquely dwelt with his people Israel. The Babylonian captivity is so bad, why? Not just because the murder and the slaughter and the taking away from their homeland, but also because they're away from the temple and the temple was destroyed and the ark is gone, whatever became of it. So much of the Old Testament focuses on the temple. And in the Old Testament, just think of how seriously the temple was taken. You remember the story of poor Uzzah who tried to stop the Ark of the Covenant from touching the dirt because it was slipping off the cart, and he reaches out his hand in a good gesture, it seems, and he's struck dead the moment he touches it. And David was upset, but God says, I will be treated as holy. And that ark, which dwelt in the holiest place in the temple, with the mercy seat upon it and the golden cherubim, represented the unique location of God himself on earth. Or again, you remember when the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen by the Philistines, it gave them all tumors, so they send it back 
And when it gets to Beth Shemesh, the people open the ark and look inside. And you've seen Indiana Jones, so you know. This, what happens when they open it? They die in mass because it is God's ark. It is where God uniquely dwells. Or if we just think of the temple itself more broadly considered, it too was taken so seriously. We have an inscription, a rather famous inscription that has been unearthed in archaeology from Herod's temple around the time of Jesus. And there were several of these signs that were placed in the temple. There was a sort of low wall, it seems. There was a sort of low wall that encased a sort of inner part of the courtyard of the temple. So if you were a Gentile, you could come to the temple. If you're a proselyte converted to Judaism, you can come to the temple on the outside. But you had to be an authentic, genuine Jewish believer, Jewish follower of Yahweh to go onto the inside. You had to be clean. You had to be Jewish. It's the only way. And there were these signs that had been placed. It wasn't commanded in Scripture, but the Jewish people had placed these signs. And let me read. We've unearthed them. Let me read what they say. Quote, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade, little wall, round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. The temple was serious business. You're the temple. That's serious business. So you go home and you might think your life doesn't seem like serious business. <laughs> but you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit <clears throat> dwells in you? And then Paul, as a good Jew, knowing the temple in a way that we simply don't, adds this. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So let me ask you, where are the interesting events happening in the world today? We would say maybe in Washington, D.C. If you're on Instagram, they're in Southern California. It's happening in New York, large urban centers. No, no. The really interesting things happening in the world today are happening here in Evansville, Indiana, in your life. As you, the temple of the Holy Spirit, bear God himself within you to the world. There's nothing more interesting than that. Celebrities drop something and newspapers and magazines write all about it, okay? But that's such a less important thing than this week when you were tempted to sin and by the power of God living within you, you said no to that sin that you often give into. You said no to it. God did that in you. Now, nobody noticed. Nobody in the media cares. Maybe no one else has any idea it even happened. It's you in your mind. That was a work of God himself on earth, in your life, in Evansville, Indiana, and it was not a small thing. You may have shared the gospel this week and you thought you did it poorly, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, God living within you, there was an opportunity that he opened and you took it and you spoke the gospel and they didn't even receive it, but you spoke it and it stuck like a burr and maybe they'll hear it later. That is the important stuff. That's what should be in the magazines. That's what should be highlighted on social media, even if it's not. There is no way for God to be inside you and your life to be some small, petty, insignificant thing. Not because you're great and important and amazing. Again, it is the gold under the foil. 
It is that the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and you are the temple of the living God. It's like what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. She was confused back then because the Samaritans had a bit of a corrupted Pentateuch, part of the Bible, and they believed that true worship wasn't even in Jerusalem at the temple, but it happened there in Samaria on one of their mountains, and that's why Jesus told her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming, and now it's come, when neither on this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem, the temple, will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That's you. You are such people. You are all tabernacles. When this church service ends today, you will all, metaphorically speaking, pull up your tent pegs. The Levites will carry everything, wrap everything up, and you will walk out of this building as a temple of God Himself with the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. When you win a victory over sin, it matters because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. When you hear a sermon attentively and are changed, it matters because God within you has done that work to help you grasp it. When you suffer and are comforted by God, it matters because it is a work of God who is within you doing it. The point of this class, if you forget everything else, is for you not to think that God is out there somewhere doing something. God is in here, right here, right now doing something in your life, no matter how boring it looks externally. This is the work that God is doing, and you are His temple. If the Spirit is in you, and the Spirit is God, then God is within you, and you're wrong about yourself in your life. It's not meaningless. It's not useless. You are a platform on which the Spirit of God Himself is demonstrating His immense power and glory to the world. May God help us to believe.